we need Julian Assange. And one thing I want to say to you today is, it is not only that he is the victim of torture, it is not only that his life is at stake, it is not only the will to save him from a dreadful injustice, we also want to save him because the world needs Julian Assange as a symbol and fighter for liberty in this Craig Murray uh, at the very top from a speech he gave at St. Francis Church uh, back in November. I'm Randy Credico. This is Randy Credico live on the fly. Uh, we are still in lockdown. We are not in our studio. It's been closed down until further notice, maybe three or four weeks. So uh, we're doing, tonight was supposed to be Ralph Nader, but we switched it around. Nader's going to be on Friday or Saturday. Um, and uh, the show we were going to do then, we're doing today. So everybody, we had to switch around just to accommodate all the dates. For me, I can do it anytime because I'm here with a dog. That's it. You know, I don't go anywhere. So that's been the good thing about this. We're able to uh, record whenever we want as long as it accommodates the person we are recording. Um, this is our, I believe, 17th show. Uh, Kelly Lane is an engineer out of uh, North Carolina. We have. Jimmy, uh, Jimmy out of um, out of California, a little city called Lake Arrowhead, and um, anonymous Scandinavian usually does. We're going to play one of his videos today, but those people have disappeared the last week and a half. Anybody here is from anonymous Scandinavian? We're very worried. Uh, we've been using them for these cut videos and sound clips um, for the last uh, last couple of years, four years. And joining us today, what's different today is uh, we are playing live music. You know, we're trying to uh, do some innovation here, not like a talking head deal. Oh, I hate talking heads. I'm a radio guy. And uh, we, we actually, a gentleman who I've worked with since 1981, 82, and that's Raphael Delugoff. Raphael Delugoff is... Uh, is he's doing comedy now. I know that, but he's a great piano player. He's done a lot of events uh, with me at the Village Gate. He used to be the, the piano player at the Village Gate way back when I met him. His father was the owner of the Village Gate, uh, a classical, iconic uh, nightclub uh, of jazz and, and, and progressive comedians. You know, everybody worked there. Lenny Bruce worked there, um, Dick Gregory, all the great jazz uh, giants worked at the uh, Village Gate. And Raphael was there. He grew up with it. So, and my father, in California, ran a nightclub. I got to see everybody. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll uh, put up a poster from one of the, what's his name? Bobby Darren worked there, Louis, Louis Armstrong, all of these wonderful, Ray Charles, uh, James Brown. I got to see them all. So that's one thing Raphael and I have in common. And uh, he worked with me recently at the, um, at the Commons Cafe. Hey, Raphael, how you doing? 
Okay. Yeah. Did you hear the third man theme? Uh, not just now. Yeah, you did, but you've heard it before. Well, yeah, I've heard it yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah, well, you should take the cotton out. Do you play that? Can you play a few bars of it for me? All right, man, you're hired. All right, Raphael Delugoff, uh, he'll be playing uh, with us uh, today. He's uh, in, in the Manhattan, over there uh, in the West Village, um, the, uh, some strange spot in Brooklyn. And uh, we have a great show today. We have, uh, you know, whistleblower, heroic whistleblower uh, from the NSA, uh, really an incredible story, Sam Adams, awardee like Julian Assange, and that is William Benny. And then later on, we have uh, Mr. Tim Canova, who uh, ran against Debbie Wasserman Schultz, and you know that story with the DNC. We'll be talking to him for the first time. Benny, we've spoken to, but not in a long time, many times, on this uh, entire Assange uh, series, which is now in its fourth year. I, first of all, I, I want to, um, Craig Murray, who gave, uh, uh, or actually, I don't know, was that the way around? It was Craig Murray who gave William Binney the award in 2016. Craig Murray was just indicted. Uh, Craig Murray and I are very close friends. He's close friends with Benny uh, and McGovern, and he's a, a Sam Adams awardee as well, former uh, FCO uh, envoy to Uzbekistan and all over uh, Western Africa. At any rate, I was at the trial with him, the first phase um, of the trial, this, this complete complete joke of a you know hearing trial first phase of Julian Assange back on February 24th in um, Belmorish. So I spent a lot of time with Craig. We'd queue in line like at five o'clock in the morning and and um, you know he got indicted for making comments about a, a trial of, of some former first minister of Scotland. Uh, he was defending him and they got indicted for making these comments just outrageous but um, you know, the guy never minces words, uh, Craig Murray. Uh, and uh, he, I, I interviewed him right after the first day of the trial. We both watched the trial of Assange the first day on the 24th of February. When we got out, I uh, went up and here's a, a little clip of that. Craig Murray outside of today's proceedings. Craig, uh, your assessment. No, we had an extremely good day because the uh, prosecution case seemed rather weak and the defense case was put very well. Uh, there were two absolutely key moments uh, for me today. Uh, the first one was when the prosecution and the judge established between them that this offense would apply to any newspaper, any journalist who received any and published any government secret. And that the whole question of aging and abetting and collusion is a, is a great headache. It would still be an offense without any collusion, and it would be an offense if any newspaper did it. Uh, and that, you know, makes pain what a massive, massive attack on free speech this is. Uh, the other key moment from defense outlined all of the war crimes, you know, not all, but, but a, a major outline of the war crimes and misdemeanors and, and corruption that WikiLeaks has exposed and why that was the political motivation behind this. So, uh, you know, those 
those were the standout moments to me and what was a very, very interesting day in court and a very good day in court for defence, but there's no jury and, you know, uh, my suspicion is the fix is in, so what difference it all makes is a very different question. Thank you, sir. Okay, so that was Craig Murray uh, back on February 24th and, you know, he tells it like it is. He's a whistleblower. He got bounced out of the FCO uh, because of his uh, exposure of torture in Uzbekistan. That's the reason why. And um, he's a great guy. Uh, in fact, I have his book here. You can either go to his website. This is the book. It's one of his many books, but this is the classic epic book called uh, Secunder Burns. Really great. Uh, you can get that uh, book and uh, go to uh, craigmurray.org.uk if you want to support Craig Murray. And, uh, you know, he's facing a couple of years in prison, a couple of years in prison. So, you know, while I was there, and I, I've been wanting to play these um, videos of uh, a few people on the street in uh, Woolwich, which is the city, or uh, Greenwich, or Woolwich, I don't know, uh, in Belmorish. I uh, stayed in some hotel room, and I, I interviewed a couple of cab drivers and uh, working class people there support Julian Assange. I'm going to play both of these. This guy, I think, was from Nigeria, but I'm not sure. There's the first one. Uh, so, sir, um, you're a local cab driver yeah, uh, here in uh, uh, southeastern London. Uh, so what do you think about uh, the uh, persecution or the trial of Julian Assange? What's happening with him? Well, I, I, I think he's completely wrong so I don't agree with them and I think he, that he should be staying here and they shouldn't take it to USA or whatever they're doing it down there I think I'm, I'm fully supporting the guy against what what whatever what do you, they they doing it why do you think they're doing it it's a political reasons I I, I completely see that the, the guy disposed what was hidden which we haven't heard before and that is the reason that they're actually taking him now. So they, they fear uh, his ability to expose bad things. That's it, yes. I yeah. agree with uh, what he exposed, and he did a good job to expose what is hidden. So we, we don't know what's going around. So in that case, I really support the guy, and I hope he, he succeeds on his case. All right, buddy. Thank you very, Thank much. You very much. Take care. Thank you. Take care. All right. So that was en route to the trial on the first day. Here's another cab driver on the day uh, that I left. Kay uh, is um, a wonderful um, taxi uh, cab driver here in uh, in Woolwick. And so what do you think of the uh, persecution or the prosecution of Julian Assange? I think... It's not fair. He has to come out. Really, he has to come out. This man, he just said uh, the fact. This is my, uh, in my opinion, and in a lot of people's opinion. And uh, uh, he, he, he has to be free. Well, why do you think they're doing this, the Americans? I don't know. I don't know, really. But, but in my opinion, he has to be free because he said the, the, the right things. He's an honest man. Yeah, he's a, he's a very honest and man. And you like what he publishes because yeah, yeah. it's true. Yes. Why, why, if a lot of things, they publish it and they lie on publishing it. He publishes it and it is fact. Why people are angry? Why? 
I don't know, but thank you very much, sir. You're welcome. All right. Sir. You're welcome. All right. So those are working class people, folks. Those are the ones that support Assange. They understand it. And uh, you know who understands it more than anybody? We're going to bring them on in just a couple of minutes. It's going to be um, my good, good, good friend, uh, William Benny. Before I do, if you want to know what this trial is all about, I'm going to play this because I have not, I've, you, you've heard it a hundred times over the last four years. I always uh, play this excerpt from the documentary by uh, the kids of William Kunstler, Emily and Sarah, their documentary. It's called um, Disturbing the Universe. And the closing scene is Bill Kunstler talking about the legal process in wake of the conspiracy uh, trial, Chicago 7, Chicago 8. Uh, he came out, and this is what he said. Now you get to see it. This is uh, from a POV point of view on, uh, on uh, what is it, PBS. So it, here's the actual visual. I've been wanting to show this. Uh, here's what it sounds like, and this is what it looks like. And that's the terrible myth of organized society, that everything that's done through the established system is legal, and that word has a powerful psychological impact. It makes people believe that there is an order to life and an order to a system. And that a person that goes through this order and is convicted has gotten all that is due him. And therefore society can turn its conscience off and look to other things and other times. And that's the terrible thing about these past trials, is that they have this aura of legitimacy, this aura of legality. I suspect that better men than the world has known, and more of them, have gone to their death through a legal system than through all the illegalities in the history of man. Six million people in Europe during the Third Reich, legal. Sacco Vanzetti, quite legal. The Haymarket defendants, legal. The hundreds of rape trials throughout the South, where black men were condemned to death, all legal. Jesus, legal. Socrates, legal. And that is the kaleidoscopic nature of what we live through here and in other places. Because all tyrants learn that it is far better to do this thing through some semblance of legality than to do it without that pretense. Yeah. All right, so that's what it was like at the trial of Julian Assange. Whatever Bill said, Kunstler, in that excerpt of that documentary by his kids, that's what it was like, it's beyond Kafka-esque. And uh, we're going to talk about that uh, with someone who's been through the ringer, you know, that great whistleblower, former NSA uh, top official, William Binney, uh, Sam Adams awardee. I mean, he's got, he's, look, I got something like this big, his resume, and I decided I'm not going to read it. All right, too much time. But uh, we're going to go to him. He likes music. 
the same way I like music, movie themes. And that's the theme tonight, movie themes. We'll be back with the heroic whistleblower, Bill Benny, right after this from A Summer Place. Dulugov with a nice rendition there, Raphael. A summer place. I don't even know who wrote that tune, Raphael. Percy Faith. Oh, that's right, Percy Faith. Yeah. All right. So uh, we'll be back with you, Ralphie. We got Rafi Dulugov. Can you believe it, Bill Benny? We have a live musician in the room yeah. tonight. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And that was your choice. Are you like a? By the way, I didn't even give you a proper introduction. You're William Benny. You're like one of my heroes. I've known you for a long time. Yeah, I've not right. spoken to you as the host of his show, co-hosted last year with Dennis Bernstein when I was doing Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom with him uh, in exile. But, you know, you were on about 90 times my first couple of years at yeah. WBAI, and they were so upset, the management there, that I concentrated on uh, this stuff, you know, with you and Ray and Assange and all of that, that we got into arguments and even though it was like one of the most popular shows, I had to go. You know that. But yeah, I heard that. Yeah, you, you, you told me about that, uh, Randy. I, I uh, couldn't believe that because, I mean, that's really what the problem is today with the, the current administration, the FBI, the DOJ, and the uh, NSA and CIA. They're all involved and they're using this as a tool to, to cause all this problem. Yeah. Well, you know, they certainly, uh, I think, uh, can influence even so-called progressive stations like that. They can put heat yeah. on general managers, okay. uh, you know. So, William Benny, by the way, um, it's always a pleasure, even though it's been a long time. Yeah. Good to see you. Are you down in Virginia or Maryland? Uh, just south of Baltimore in Maryland. Yeah. Okay. That's great. Uh, and uh, it's really good to have you there, Bill, uh, have you here. Uh, how are you doing, by the way? How are you, how are you holding up in this crazy environment here well, COVID-19 lockdown? Uh, we, we keep going out because it's no different than the flu. You know, basically, it's the flu. Yeah, as long as you don't catch it, right? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the point is everybody has the same chance to catch it every time it comes, which is twice a year, right? <laughs> yeah, the flu comes twice a year? Yes. Yeah. Well, I certainly don't want to catch this one. I didn't like to catch the flu, to be honest with you. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's, they've made this one so scary that, uh, you know, I stay indoors. And not that I'm, I'm responding to the government. It's just that I have friends of mine that are 80 years old. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't want to get near um, after I go out and infect them. You know what I mean? I have a lot of older friends. Um, most of my friends are older than I am. I'm 65 and I have friends that are 80, 82, 83, and I don't want to infect them. So, you know, I'm playing it safe and I'm getting a lot of work done uh, in the meantime, but not because the government tells me to stay indoors. I'm just doing it uh, on my own accord. I'm not worried about getting arrested. 
Well, I mean, the main thing to do is, uh, <clears throat> you know, wear a mask and keep a little distance. And I mean, there shouldn't be people who aren't infected. They should be tested to see if they've got the antibodies. If they do, there's no reason why they can't be working. Right. And they right. can still wear a mask while they work and, you know, keep as much distance as they need, as they possibly can and in their work. All right. Well, you listen, Dr. Bill, you're Dr. Bill now. Right? <laughs> okay. Dr. Bill, and you are... Um, um, I saw you back in uh, in January at the Sam Adams uh, Award Show, and up front we played a little segment of uh, a Craig Murray. I don't know if you know, Craig Murray is facing a couple of years in prison, and uh, I re I told the audience out there that you're the one that got the award from Craig Murray, who had a hard time getting into the country in 2016. He's the one who presented you with a Sam Adams. Award. What do you say about uh, Craig Murray's predicament now? Well, I think it's uh, absolutely crazy. What it's really saying is this judge is saying no one is allowed to have an opinion that I dislike, you know? So what happened to free speech in Scotland, you know? As far as I'm concerned, somebody trying to get rid of spe free speech like that should be, uh, should be impeached from their position. They need to be out. We don't, you know, judges like that don't deserve to be judges. Yeah, well, look. We have a lot of them here, and, yeah. and, 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 and you know, I don't know if you ever went before a judge, uh, but can you give uh, for people who don't know you? Most people who listen to this show know you. You know, you'd have to be from a different planet not to know who William Benny is. Uh, you, you're highly visible in the circles that uh, uh, follow this show. Uh, but for those who we hope we get a lot of newcomers, that's what this is about: is to get newcomers. And can you just give us a snapshot? Uh, what uh, your travail was like, uh, your uh, legal problem, and uh, how it came about, and how it was resolved. Well, yeah, mine basically. I I was uh, involved in uh, uh, putting together a program inside NSA that would allow them to basically monitor the entire world for uh, bad doers like criminals, international crime, uh, or any kind of terrorist attacks or threats from any kind of group of people around the world. And it was basically done with the internet and the phone network. And uh, we did it in such a way that we also monitored, protected everybody's identity and privacy because of the data of people who weren't involved in any uh, criminal activity, their data wasn't even taken in. And you know, anybody whose data was taken in and we didn't know that they were involved or have a warrant on them, we would encrypt all their identity factors. And we had another program that monitored who came into the network and did what they did with the data, you know, and how much data they took so we could monitor who did what with the information. Now, the problem with that was when you put that program on the entire worldwide international uh, NSA network, you know, everything that all these senior executives in the NSA and the United States government are doing with the data that NSA had. That they didn't want. And that the idea was they wanted the ability to look at everybody. So we had a filtering program that got rid of all data that wasn't relevant. And they took that filter out so everything came in. And then they removed the encryption so there was no protection for the identities. And they stopped the auditing because they didn't want anybody to know what they were doing with the data. So that meant they got everybody, knew who everybody was, and could do anything they wanted to with the data. And no one would know. Wow. Except it is recorded at NSA. Wow. That's scary. So. Uh, 
you you had this program called Thin Thread, and right. then you went to this different program. Michael Hayward is that his name? Hayden. 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 Yeah. So what's the difference? All right. I'm speaking. <laughs> right. So, Mike. Yeah. I've, I haven't seen him around lately. All I know is he blocked me on Twitter. Yeah. Um, can you imagine that? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, when you took this this program uh, that would streamline everything and protect people like myself, their privacy, what happened? Well, uh, of course, NSA wanted to use it to look at everybody. Actually, at the time, Dick Cheney wanted it for to spy on everybody or know all of his enemies. That was one of the things he learned from Richard Nixon, right, and Watergate and all of that issue. So that was the thing coming through the political system. That was the drive there, to know everything about everybody. And Hayden's drive was to build an empire, get lots of money, you know, get a bigger empire, bigger budget, all of that. A true bureaucrat likes to do that. That's what bureaucrats do, right? Yeah. So, uh, so in order to get to do that, they had to take the program we developed, put it online as their major program, put all these taps in the United States and around the world so they could have all U.S. citizens and everybody, all of their metadata, all of their content of communication, everything. So, and that's, what, that's basically what they did. But they had to get rid of me and, and the little SARC team, take our software and do it, separately without us because we object to that kind of thing you know we didn't we wanted to follow the constitution that's why we built all those protections for privacy in but they didn't want that and, and, and so what happened you uh blew the whistle yeah we went, we went uh, first to the uh, to the house intelligence committee because it was their job to make sure this kind of thing didn't happen that was the charter for those committees the intelligence committees out of the church committee when they were formed back in 78 with the FISA laws, you know, and the FISA court. That was all set in place to make sure that the intelligence com com committee, uh, community, mainly the FBI, CIA, and NSA, didn't spy on US citizens. That was their charter. And now all they are is advocates for that. So I don't understand, what is it that they want? Why would they want to do this, Bill? It's, uh, I call it population control. They want to manage the entire population, not just in the United States, but of the world. Look at what's happening with the COVID-19 virus. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, 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 it's, it's a catch-22. I mean, you know, I, 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 I don't know. I'm trying to stay safe here. But at the same time, I see some kind of creeping uh, hand of fascism, like floating through the surface here. And there are other people who say that. But by saying that, it sounds like I'm a flat earther, you know. <laughs> No, actually, you're just trying to recognize what the hell's going on. Yeah, you think well, it's a lot worse. You think, you think that, that the uh, COVID-19 is, is a scare tactic to, uh, to intimidate and, and to monitor uh, human beings? Not sure. just here, but everywhere. Yeah, sure. And there's, and there's any number of doctors who are, who are you know, trained and practice in the, in the infectious diseases kind of area and are coming out saying this whole thing is, you know, uh, you know, everything is basically, they should be opening up now because they can clearly see it's not as dangerous as, it, as the flu or other, other kinds of disease. Or take, for example, the, the problems that people have because they're not, being, they're not going out. They're not going out to get medications or getting treatment in hospitals or something like that. These guys were saying that they're closing down partial portions of the hospital and sending doctors home. Well, that means people aren't being treated. Yeah, I had a toothache here for, I, I would say, the worst toothache I've ever had for almost two weeks. And I went through like six or seven bottles 
of, uh, of yeah. ibuprofen, seriously, because you know how bad a toothache can be and it's not being treated. My dentist, he closed down, yeah. and isn't back. Um, and if I got sick, I wouldn't go to a doctor right now because you can't get in anywhere. Yeah. It's uh, jammed with these patients right yeah. now. And you know, the medical system is pretty fucked up in this country. Let's be honest. The healthcare system, wouldn't you say? I mean, you're covered because you work with the government for a long time. How good is your uh, health plan? Mine is great, you know, but I have a supplemental plan also. So plus I have Medicare. Right, right. Well, that's what I have right now. I can't believe it. I haven't been sick in, in like 40 years and I got sick as soon as I turned 65. I actually had to use it. I got, go. sick on, I got sick on a plane, got dragged off the plane and taken to a hospital. And uh, so that was the first time I'd been sick. And it yeah. happened just a few months after my uh, 65th birthday. Um, Bill, I, I, this is Assange Countdown to Freedom. Um, Randy Critical Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. This is our fourth year. You were on the very second one this week. This week, exactly three years ago, you were on the second one. I recall you and uh, Ray McGovern. And here we are, three years later, and I asked John Pilger this the other day, we haven't moved the ball forward. It's like we've been taken for a loss. Yeah, but you see, that's again, that's the uh, that's that worldwide movement to do uh, whatever they want with whomever they want, and not be held accountable for what for their actions. Like, for example, what they've done to Julian Assange, at least in the in the courts in the European Union and and the uh, you know uh, humanitarian courts, they've been saying this is torture. They've been doing running him through torture for all this time. So, you know, and. And it's not something, I mean, what, what, are the, what are the charges against him? I don't know why the- Espionage, Espionage Act. He's got 17 charges, Espionage Act. Okay, but that's the US charge. Right. It's not the UK charge. The UK is holding him. What's right. the UK charge? Well, the UK charge was bail skipping, but he already served that sentence. Yeah. So he's being held right now in a prison awaiting uh, this extradition hearing, which is not even going to continue for another six months. He's been locked down in, uh, it's bad enough for me for a month, but he was locked down for seven years in that embassy, that Ecuadorian embassy, now a year in this dungeon. You know, uh, Albert Speer had better conditions when he was at Spandau than Julian Assange has right now. Yeah. Um, well, let, let me ask you, with, with the UN, special rapporteur saying that this is torture. You had the, uh, the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. They've come out and condemned it. You had Amnesty International, Reporters Without Borders, and a whole bunch of other uh, respected international organizations that have condemned this treatment of Julian Assange. Why are the British continuing to suck up to the US and do their bidding with this prosecution of Julian Assange? Because it's a worldwide joint operation. Yes, can you explain the, that? I mean, they're in, they're in league together, that's all. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, one, one does, the other does. So, wait a second. So this is, Australia is as bad as, um, yep. uh, it's all these five eyes um, uh, countries. Good. All right, so tell us, tell us for the people who don't know about five eyes, uh, what they do. All right, for the few people out there who don't know, explain what five eyes is. Well, Five Eyes is like the joint uh, U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, New Zealand agreements where they cooperate in intelligence and uh, intelligence production. They have uh, human sources. They also cooperate with CIA, like MI5, MI6 with CIA, MI5 with the FBI, and GCHQ with NSA. 
those that's the that's the basic court that's the kernel of the cabal of people around the world doing this stuff so yeah. and so, there's like eight or nine other countries that are involved with them also in, in the bulk acquisition of data there's another 20 some that are also involved with them uh, around the world that are uh, not not involved in the bulk acquisition but other activities of intelligence gathering in terms of human and, and and signals intelligence and things of that nature well you know we're talking about western democracies that have all collaborated in, in this overreaching attempt to silence julian assange one man what on earth are they afraid of the truth they can't take the truth that when when julian publishes he publishes the truth on countries around the world and none of them like it because he does that right. they don't want their population to know the truth that's all uh, you, you know you got the war logs you got cable gate yeah. uh, they don't want that they don't want people to well that's already out but they don't want anything in the future to get out is that's that right. what it is are they trying to send a message or or they just want to quiet this guy no no uh, he's the he's the poster boy for what they're going to do to other reporters around the world who do this i mean after all he's not a u.s citizen he's being charged in the u.s and the uk is a, is basically going along with the charge and holding him until they can uh, extradite him for tr for a trial but the same will be true for any reporter anywhere in the world now why have reporters been so reluctant to come out in support in the mainstream media, MSNBC, uh, CNN, NPR, other, uh, New York, they've published his stuff, but why haven't they come out and circled the wagons in a vehement way? I think there's two reasons. First reason, he scooped them all. He got the truth out before anybody else did on all these problems that for the last 10 and plus years, he's been reporting on. He got stuff that nobody else did. And he basically scooped the world and all they could do was follow what he was saying. That, that, that was one thing they want to get out, get rid of him so they can be the leaders, you know? And the other thing is they're just outright cowards. They're afraid of the governments they are in. So what happens to them though, if Assange is successfully uh, sent over here, extradited and prosecuted, uh, because when that happens, there's no chance he can win in the Virginia court in the Eastern right. District. So what happens then if that well, happens to these reporters? Well, the reporters keep, they basically keep doing what they're doing now, keep their mouths shut and do what they're told. Right. But th isn't this ominous for them as well? You know? Uh, like I say, they're cowards. They're not going to stand up even for themselves. I see. Well, uh, you know, we know about the war logs. We've seen the war logs. Yeah. Um, we've uh, seen what he's done with Cablegate, what WikiLeaks has done. Um, tell us about Vault 7, because this really seemed to accelerate after the release of Vault 7 in the, about this time in 2017. Can you give us the significance of Vault 7? Well, uh, Vault 7 was a compromise of uh, all of the uh, attack tools in the network that the CIA was working with. And it was like hundreds of millions of source line code, hundreds of millions of lines of source code, meaning tens of thousands of different types of attacks on firewalls, operating systems, networks, computers, servers, everything, switches, the entire, any, any communications device they had 
attacks to go at. And they never told anybody about these weaknesses. So we never had any cybersecurity because uh, all of these weaknesses were existing for everybody. And we all had them, you know? And we still do because they've not fixed them all yet. And it, I haven't seen yet a move for any of, the, any of them to, to fix them. I think some of the companies are going through the Vault 7 material, looking at it and trying to find out how they can fix their products, you know? But uh, I don't know how much that's happening. But the point is this uh, Vault 7 had a program called Marble Framework, which you and I talked about before the yeah, show. Yeah. And this program was designed to go in or attack a, a server or a computer and make it look like somebody else did the attack. The countries they they tried they made it uh, that that they had the code to, to make it look like were Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, and Arab countries. So th those five different types of attacks made it look like other people did it. So and in in the Vault Seven it said the Marble Framework was used one time in uh, 2016. Yeah. So, and what do you think that was? Well, some of our guys were looking at the data for for uh, WikiLeaks and what uh, Gooseford 2 had published back on the 15th of June saying, here's some of the stuff I took. Well, some of the five of those items, the, the guys over in the UK were doing the research, found those same five items in WikiLeaks documentation. So the five items in the cyber, in the Gooseford 2 data had the imprints of the Russians in it. But the same items in the WikiLeaks did not. That meant, those were inserted into that email. Wow. Those were Podesta emails, by the way. And so when, uh, when uh, that was, that just simply showed that somebody implanted the, uh, and made it look like the Russians did the hack. Right. And so, that, that, that tied back to, to uh, the Marble Framework program assertion that was used once. That was what that program did. And so therefore, all these things with Gooseford 2 are pointing right back at CIA as the origin of all of these, this charade about Russiagate. Right. So, you know, you look at that, uh, the other, there, there were, I think, like eight or nine different programs that were disclosed yeah. by WikiLeaks at this point. Uh, how scary are those programs that are contained in Vault 7? To you? Uh, uh, well, I mean, it's, uh, it gives everybody in the world the opportunity to look over the source code and manage and modify it and make different, different types of attacks. You know, so, just, yeah, so, it's all very dangerous unless they start addressing it. You all, it's only going to get worse. For example, if you remember that uh, virus that, that was uh, going across Europe, going in and around the world, I think, going into hospitals and disabling things in the hospitals. That yes. Was, I can't remember what that one was, but I, there was a name for that one. But it was a modification of one of those ones in the Vault 7. I see. So, in other words, those, the CIA actually allowed these uh, programs that they developed to get out. The genie well, got think, out of the bottle. Is that it? I think, I think there's a fellow charged with it now. He was a contractor working for CIA. He's being charged with uh, leaking those. I see. But, I mean, now that they're out, they're, they're, they're extremely dangerous. I mean, take, take the... Uh, Take the uh, program that they did to try to confuse the Iranians on their nuclear program with that, you know, the virus they put in there. They gave them a whole bunch of stuff on the nuclear stuff with, a, with a, some fault in it, but, but it was easy to see the fault in the, in, the, in the design of the nuclear program they gave them. So they worked right through that, and all that did was put them ahead uh, in their nuclear program. 
So, you know, this is the stupid idiots down there at CIA thinking they can put a program together to deceive somebody because they think they're stupid. When in fact, the ones, the only ones that are stupid are the ones at CIA giving them and advancing their nuclear program by giving them designs that they shouldn't have. Well, um, there are other programs that they were used. What's the uh, initial purpose uh, of developing these programs? Was it just to make a bunch of money and come up with stuff that they could say they are developing? Or was it uh, to uh, repress and, well, and uh, spy on uh, Americans and people abroad? Yeah, that was, that was the whole key was be able to have uh, windows to look into what people were saying to one another. So uh, if, they, if you encrypted things like and pass it across the line, that, uh, and, and it was uh, encryption they couldn't read, what they could do is go in and attack your computer to where you stored the decrypt, pull out the decrypt and read it, so they didn't need to worry about your encryption system. Wow. So, and so that's the way they get around these things. It allows them to get around all obstacles to see what you're doing, what you're saying. So this was, this was, a, this was a, uh, a great disclosure uh, by WikiLeaks and something that we should know about uh, that's being hidden from the public. And these are the type of disclosures that the government, which we pay for, yep. <clears throat> that they don't want out there. And yep. so they are dead set on crippling Julian Assange. They can prolong this trial process. And as long as they do that, the longer he will be totally muted. <clears throat> Yeah, but it's really short-sighted, finite thinking on the part of CIA and the rest of the intelligence community here in the United States. Because what it is, is they know all these weaknesses, but they don't tell anybody that they're weaknesses and they should fix them. So that means we're all vulnerable to attacks. That means that anybody in China or you know, Russia or North Korea or Iran, they can attack us because they know the weaknesses now too. So, so, you know, unless they fix these things, we have no cybersecurity. But look at what they're doing. Every time there's a attack, what do they do? Oh, we need more money for cybersecurity. But they know about tens of thousands of attacks here on all kinds of things, you know, switches, servers, computers, operating systems, firewalls, all of it. And they don't tell anybody. That means they want to look into what you're doing and saying and, 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 and not, not get them fixed. Because if, if they tell the companies that here's the problem you have, and they fix it, they can't look in, right? Because the weakness goes away, it's no longer weak. But that means they can't, they shouldn't be asking us for cybersecurity money until they fix all the problems they know. Then maybe we'll have some cybersecurity. Wow, Bill, I uh, got just a few minutes here. Um, let me ask you first, uh, the contribution heretofore that Julian Assange has made uh, to the human race, uh, yeah. to journalism uh, in so many words. Uh, well, he's, he's brought the truth forward of what countries are doing and shouldn't be. He's brought forward the idea of humanity that, and, uh, and the inhumane treatment that's been going on for people around the world. He's made a contribution to, con- to, to every country on, in the world to be able to look and see these, all these violations of human rights and, and what really a problem we as a world community need to deal with and haven't. That's why they want to get rid of them because they, they don't then have control, right? They, don't, they can't abuse people. They can't, they can't do anything they want to to populations around the world. Well, you know, Bill, this is, I'm, I'm just going to say uh, this is part one of a continual conversation with you because, you know, I'd like to talk to you for a whole hour because there's a lot that you can tell us 
and we will do that. Uh, we have another guest, and we have uh, we're short on time. In 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 the closing minute, Bill, can you just tell people what happened to you uh, when uh, you uh, became a whistleblower? Well, you know, when 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 I I did it, the other guys with me out of NSA, we all went through the proper channels. We went to the House Intelligence Committee, the Inspector Generals of the Department of Justice, and the Department of Defense, the proper channels, as Senator Feinstein said, and all that did was was uh, make us a target for the FBI and then the system itself. Once they, I mean, it was the, the Inspector General, the Department of Defense that gave our names to the FBI as likely candidates for the New York Times like in 2005 of the warrantless wiretapping program. Well, we, were, we didn't do that, of course, and they knew it, but they still targeted us and, and raided us, took our equipment, shut down our company, broke us up, you know, and uh, it basically destroyed our business. So. Uh, and it also blackballed us for, for working anywhere else in this country. Yeah. Did you have to spend a lot of money in legal bills? Uh, no, because I caught them in, in uh, violating all kinds of laws. Plus, I threatened them, them. I threatened the Department of Justice of the United States with malicious prosecution. And I gave them the evidence that I had against them. And they ran like cowards. Wow. This is after they raided your house. After, after that. And, uh, and then we sued them to get everything back and won. Wow. You are um, a, uh, a true hero, uh, William Benny, and we, will, we look forward to continuing this discussion because there's a lot more to talk about. Oh, yeah. This yeah. is just the beginning here of our discussion, and we're going to be doing this on a weekly basis, and I, I look forward to having a, a, a nice one-hour chat with you over a huge cup of latte. All right. Instead of this little thing that I have here, this is just a small little, yeah. little, yeah. little espresso. All right. So um, we're going to take you out uh, with another movie theme that uh, I know you're aware of. And it starred Humphrey Bogart and uh, Peter Laurie and oh, Henry yeah. Bergman. And this is from uh, Casablanca. And right. we'll talk to you soon. Let, let them listen to this. This is Raphael yeah. DeLugoff uh, as time goes by. Yep. Thank you.
Beautiful, Raphael de Lugoff. Yep. And um, we are going to uh, play a little video that I, I made with Anonymous Scandinavia. It's the perfect spot for that. Uh, this is um, called Casa Assange. This is Bogart and the crew all going to bat for Julian Assange. And we'll be right back with Tim Canova. If you don't get on that plane to London and support Julian Assange, one of these days you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. The U.S. will do anything they can to stop Assange from exposing the secret wars, the political corruption, and their crimes against humanity. They'll kidnap or assassinate or chuck him into an American concentration camp. Yes, sweetheart, Assange's survival is essential for a free and open society. The world depends on him. Here's looking at you, kid. You know, Rick, once they get Assange, they'll come after us. That's why I'm joining that free garrison to London to support the young man. And these 10,000 francs should pay for our expenses. Our expenses? Uh-huh. Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Right, so that was uh, Humphrey Bogart and uh, Ingrid Bergman and uh, Claude Rains. I put that together with Anonymous Scandinavia. And uh, if you hear from Anonymous Scandinavia, please uh, have him contact or have them contact me uh, because they make uh, all of our videos and we're worried they've disappeared the last uh, 10 days. Anyway, I'm Randy Credico. This is Randy Credico live on the fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom. That was William Binney on the other side. And now we are being joined. And I've been wanting to interview this guy for the last three years, but he's so busy. He's all <laughs> over the place. Not easy to get. I spotted him one time, and that was at the left forum, talking about Tim Canova, an attorney, a uh, former candidate for uh, Congress, an enemy of uh, DWS, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, knows all about her, and a uh, supporter of Julian Assange. And uh, Tim, it's really it's, I'm so thrilled to finally get you on this show. Randy, I'm glad to be here. I'm in South Florida in Broward County, which is between Miami. Uh, uh, I'm between Miami and Fort Lauderdale. Okay, so th is, that, is that the district that uh, you ran against uh, DWS? Yes, it is. All right, so uh, let's, let's go back to this uh, DWS and Julian Assange. Uh, before you entered the race, mm -hmm. I think 2016, yes. these revelations on the DNC came out by WikiLeaks. And when you saw that, uh, what did you think? Did that prompt you to run? No. I, uh, or actually, did you kind of affirm what you already knew? Uh, it, it did very much affirm uh, much of what I knew, uh, but I had already gotten into the race. In 2015, I got involved in the anti-Trans-Pacific Partnership movement with a group called the Citizens Trade Campaign. And Wasserman Schultz was the only Democrat in Florida's House delegation to vote to fast track it. We wanted to find somebody who would challenge her in a primary because it's a very gerrymandered Democratic district. I had no intention of running for Congress, but I got swept up. You know, Bernie Sanders was calling for a political revolution. And I, I realized if at some point I finally realized that Wasserman Schultz was a key problem in the Democratic Party and that if I jumped in, we could really put the heat on her. So, I, so you knew this. You knew this prior to the WikiLeaks uh, dump on on how she rigged 
the uh, the primary process. You know, in 2015, she was in the bag. Yes, in, in late 2015, she had made up this story about the Sanders campaign uh, violating the firewall in the van voter data system. It was all contrived and made up, and it tr she tried to block the Sanders campaign from using this important organizing tool just a few weeks before Iowa. And the Sanders campaign sued her and the DNC, and in that one day when they sued her, they raised a million dollars online in small donations. And I realized at that point, if I'm in the race, I'll raise a quarter million dollars on a day like today, and she's the problem. I realized the head of the DNC was stacking the deck against Bernie Sanders. So I jumped in in early January of 2016. The WikiLeaks didn't happen until half a year later. Well, the Wiki, the DNC, uh, DNC. came, what, in June? Or, like in I, June, right? Or, I think it was June. I think it was right. June of 2016. So you were already aware of, of the corruption of, of this uh, Congresswoman, uh, DWS. And uh, so you decided to get in, which, yeah. you know, look, I know it's a difficult chore to run up against somebody who's a chair of the DNC uh, at that uh, point in time, but you decided anyway. Uh, what kind of support did you get locally and what kind of support did you get nationally? So nationally, um, our campaign raised $3.8 million from 209,000 individual contributions of $70. $20 for me. I put in $20. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, um, so 209,000 people like you threw in an average of $17. With that $3.8 million, we opened up four field offices in our district. And Bernie Sanders, in his Florida presidential campaign in 2016, had one field office for all of South Florida. We had four field offices in one district. We had almost 150 to 200 souls every day, volunteers and field organizers and deputy field organizers knocking on doors. We were knocking on 12,000 doors a week by the time of the August primary. And our final field numbers showed us crushing her. I mean, crushing her, not even close. And running away with it at the end. And we have the election, the polls close. Within an hour, they declare her the victor by 13 percentage points. And uh, you know, really, every early voting station I went to, every election day station I went to, it was like we were winning a landslide. And our final field numbers, this is based on much more than a, a telephone poll of likely voters to 600 people. I'm telling you, we were knocking on 12,000 doors a week. So I never conceded, and I asked to see the ballots. And that's where it starts getting real interesting. Well, this go ahead and tell me that, because I, I, I remember back then, everyone was, was focusing on your particular race. Mm -hmm. uh, there was the presidential race. And then there was the one race in South Florida between you and Debbie Wasserman Schultz. But at that point, you got to understand, people really despised her uh, because of her role in rigging the uh, primary against Bernie Sanders, which, of course, WikiLeaks, when those dumps came out, uh, you're talking about that these figures were prior to the, to the uh, WikiLeaks uh, disclosures on the DNC corruption. The, you were way ahead back then? No, no, no. Uh, I, I was, um, we had a poll in May, so it was just before the disclosures. Our poll had me down by eight points, right. but closing fast. Um, there was still a lot of people who didn't even know who I was yet, 
and still I was only eight points back. And that was in May. So that's a snapshot in May. By August, everything had gotten that much more viral. And uh, I had very good name recognition. Uh, my negatives, you know, my approval to disapproval was very high approvals and very low disapprovals. Whereas with Wasserman Schultz, it was the absolute opposite. And, you know, she was the perfect candidate to go against. She had made herself extremely unpopular, not just nationally, but within the district as well. People want to change. So, you know, we really felt very good going into the final few weeks. And uh, our field numbers just kept confirming a gigantic victory for us. So, um, you know, I understand we were probably behind in the absentee ballots that start coming in four weeks before the election. But within that two-week limit going into early voting, um, we were hitting our stride on all cylinders. And she had been dodging debates. She, uh, she, she agreed to have one debate. At first, it was going to be a 15-minute debate on TV, and then we got it up to half an hour. Um, she was on the run the whole, and on her heels the whole time. So I never believed the results. They just didn't seem credible to me. And however, you know, you, you got to be have some humility about it. You, you never really know what could happen. So I asked to see the ballots. I thought this is the best way to verify it. I'll say right after the election, I was being contacted by election integrity people from around the country who were studying the results. And they were creating these cumulative vote tallies. I'm not a mathematician. So I can only tell you that the, the experts who were crunching the numbers were telling me they didn't add up. They found the election results implausible statistically, mathematically implausible. So I figured there's a lot of chatter there that the race has been stolen and that it was rigged by computer software. And I figured the best way to deal with this, let's inspect the paper ballots in a dozen key precincts. If they match up, it puts an end to it. If it matches up, I'll call up Wasserman Schultz, congratulate her and concede. That's, that, that was my feeling. That's the best way to verify the vote and just put it to rest, all the concerns that the experts had. So I put in a public records request to inspect the ballots. The supervisor of elections is Brenda Snipes, as I learn a, a close crony of Wasserman Schultz's. And they, under Florida statutory law and under the Florida constitution, Ballots are public records. Every citizen has a right to inspect public records. The case law was clear, and it didn't matter. The supervisor of elections stonewalled us for more than half a year, and I finally had to bring a lawsuit, which I did. And this hardly ever happens. I can tell you half a dozen candidates who believe, and I'm talking of national significance, who believe that their races may have been stolen through computer manipulation, and they never asked to see the ballots. They're professional politicians. I'm not. I'm a tenured law professor. And I figured, what do I have to lose? What does it matter? Uh, I'll go back and I'll be a professor. Uh, I don't care if uh, uh, the, the pundits want to make fun of me. I, I'm curious. I want to see the ballots. Was this like a symbolic run or you were, you were serious? In oh, I, I, was, I, was, I was quite serious about trying to win that race. It was not a symbolic race. Well, I, I got to tell you, we all thought you were going to win. Yeah, now, that was the buzz. I mean, you, you, yeah. like I said, there was Trump versus. Uh, uh, Randy, uh, was, I'll no, tell you at this point, uh, I, there are a lot of folks who believe I did win and it was stolen. This is the primary now. We're talking about the primary. The primary, yes. Sir. So, yes. so um, 
But how was that uh, finally resolved? So uh, that's what makes it quite interesting. We, we file a lawsuit in June of 2017. It took that long to inspect the, rec uh, the, the, the paper ballots. And three months into the lawsuit, with her lawyers playing games to try to delay things, we served discovery requests. And three days after serving the discovery request, Brenda Snipes signed an order to destroy every ballot that was cast. And they destroyed every ballot that was cast in my primary in violation of state and federal criminal law. Wow, that stinks. That yeah. really stinks. So and, that it, was a year later, you know. It, yes, it was a year later. And, and it's amazing how stacked the deck is against candidates who lose to be able to challenge elections, how difficult it is. I went through this process. It took a year. They destroyed the ballots. And still there was no criminal investigation. And you, maybe you'll appreciate this. Um, we go through this lawsuit. It took us a little while to discover that they destroyed the ballots. And we got Brenda Snipes on the witness stand in sworn videotaped depositions. So we have videotape of the sworn deposition with her admitting to unlawfully destroying the ballots. And the judge grants a summary judgment. My lawyers get over $100,000, $150,000 in lawyers' fees, attorney's fees. And we were hoping that that would lead to a criminal investigation of Snipes, and hopefully a criminal investigation would lead to more answers and find out who was behind all of this. So my lawyer spoke to the U.S. attorney here in South Florida at the time and reported back to me that he was extremely interested, the acting U.S. attorney, Benjamin Greenberg, very interested. After all, this is handing them an open and shut case on a silver platter. Brenda Snipes has admitted in sworn deposition. The only better evidence would be if we had videotaped of her with a blowtorch destroying the ballots, you know, really. And so Greenberg sounds interested. You know, why not? It's an open and shut case. He flies to Washington, D.C. for a week of meetings at the Justice Department and comes back and is suddenly not interested in pursuing justice. Says he doesn't have the lawyers who would know how to prosecute this case, which was a completely ridiculous excuse. I mean, an open and shut case like this, destruction of evidence, there's nothing complex about it. We found out later that the Department of Justice official who killed that investigation was none other than Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. No kidding. No kidding. Wow. I got to tell you something, that's quite, that's quite a, you know, uh, I don't say a tale, but quite a story there. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, um, the role of WikiLeaks, did they do something that was illegal to you when they disclosed the corruption of the uh, DNC, or was that not a public service? I guess I would answer by asking, did the New York Times and Washington Post do anything illegal by publishing the Pentagon Papers? These are matters of public interest. They're publishing. Somebody else might have broken the law in getting them the documents, but the publisher has a right to publish, and that's the New York Times versus um, Sullivan. Of Sullivan, yes, exactly. So, no, I don't think WikiLeaks did anything wrong. I think they, they performed a public service. It was embarrassing disclosures for Hillary Clinton and Wasserman Schultz. You know, in the DNC WikiLeaks disclosures, my name appears 100, 200 times. I, I lost track how many times. So the DNC was being used by Wasserman Schultz to surveil me as well and my campaign.
wait a second, I did not know about that. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate? I, I don't know much else what to elaborate. If you do, if you go to the DNC WikiLeaks and it's th- those files are available online and you punch in my name, you'll get 100 or 200 hits. I, I don't know how many. And there's all kinds of chatter within the DNC organization of what Tim Canova and his campaign are up to and what did Tim Canova say today? And they were using DNC resources to surveil me. That is, that is scary. Um, how uh, valuable is the organization WikiLeaks to you? To me, I think back to collateral murder. Uh, you know, you had this uh, war going on that George W. Bush brought us into in Iraq under very false pretenses, right? Uh, suddenly Saddam Hussein became Osama bin Laden, right? And, uh, you know, even though Saddam had nothing to do with September 11th, uh, that, that was kind of the malarkey <laughs> that, uh, that Bush and Cheney were feeding everybody. And then weapons of mass distraction and all that. Anyway, we end up in the war. And what did WikiLeaks do? They came out with collateral murder, which was the files that Chelsea Manning, then Bradley Manning, had handed over to WikiLeaks. And the, the video that's come to be known as collateral murder, I think, was a turning point in public opinion in this country. On par, I think, with the Pentagon Papers and what it did to U.S. support in the Vietnam War. That collateral murder video was a video taken from a helicopter gunship, a U.S. helicopter gunship, looking down at the ground. And you heard what the um, U.S. military, Air Force personnel were saying. And you saw them assassinate, basically, uh, unarmed people, including a couple of Reuters correspondents, and children were in the way as well. And when that kind of went viral, that was the turning point for public opinion to finally, let's get out of Iraq, enough of this already. And it still took a lot of years uh, and a lot more American blood, but that is a public service that WikiLeaks did. And I would say that Manning, Manning did. It took a lot of courage to do what Manning did uh, to turn those files over to a publisher. And from what I understand, Manning tried to get the New York Times and the Washington Post and other establishment uh, publications to publish those files, and they refused to. Well, so, Deb Wasserman Schultz, uh, what was her position on uh, both the Afghan and uh, Iraq war? Uh, she kept voting for appropriations for each of them. Uh, she wasn't in Congress when those wars started, but she continued to fund them. And, um, you know, and the Patriot she, Act. Yeah, I, I believe she was for the Patriot Act, and she was certainly for regime change wars in Libya and in, in Syria as well. Uh, so she is... Who controls uh, her? Well, uh, I'll tell you, this is what's interesting. In 2015, when I was working with the Citizens Trade Campaign, and we were trying to get her to just meet with us to talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, we uh, did our research and we discovered that she had taken $330,000 from corporate interests that wanted the TPP. And that got us thinking, and we started looking further. And it turned out in the course of her career, she had taken millions of dollars from the biggest Wall Street banks, fossil fuel companies, defense companies. She's owned lock, stock, and barrel, private prison companies, payday lenders, every odious predatory corporate interest you can think of, it looks like Wasserman Schultz has taken money from. And this is what I find fascinating. She's had a very safe Democratic district 
and she never had Democratic opposition in a primary before. And she knows once she gets the wins the nomination, she'll walk onto, you know, uh, she's got no real opposition because it's such a gerrymandered district for Democrats. So somebody who's got that safe a district, had I won, you know what I would have done with it? I would have used that to ask tough questions of those corporate interests. She, quite the opposite. She was able to gaslight the people of this district, make them think that she was some kind of liberal progressive because she was always denouncing Bush and Trump and whoever the Republican boogeyman was. But all the same time, she's taking unbelievable amounts of money from these corporate interests. Can you name anything that she's done that's been uh, beneficial uh, to, to the American public? Anything she's sponsored? Has she done anything progressive? Um, she tries to take credit for some progressive appropriation bills, but, you know, they are appropriations that are part of huge, big appropriation packages. I don't think she's ever sponsored any legislation of note that's passed Congress. Um, look, she became a fixer. How does somebody rise up so quickly? She hadn't been in Congress for a dozen years, and suddenly she's the chair of the Democratic National Committee. And it was because she was willing to do Hillary Clinton's bidding. And she had been chairing Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2008. And then in 2016, suddenly, you know, she's in the DNC, the catbird seat. And as Donna Brazile showed in her, her book, Wasserman Schultz had transformed the DNC into an arm of the Clinton campaign. The finances, the communications, all of that was being run out of the Clinton campaign. She had handed the DNC over to one candidate in that race. And even why Tulsi Gabbard left. That's why Tulsi Gabbard left. Tulsi Gabbard saw the way that it was being run, that it was being rigged. And, and she was rigging the primaries in all kinds of ways. She limited the number of debates. The debates that uh, there were scheduled between Clinton and Sanders were scheduled on days that there were college football championships and all kinds of, you know, other distracting events. She was hiding the debates. And um, even after she lost her job, um, I should say that when I first jumped in the race, um, the, the few experienced political people around me were saying, you know, Tim, you're going to have a problem in the summer. Uh, TV time is going to become expensive because we have the Olympics. And then there's the DNC uh, convention. And Debbie is going to be on the center stage. She's going to get a lot of free advertising. Uh, and I, I remember as the, the weeks went by and it started becoming closer, and they would have that same conversation with me, I said, I, I have one question. How is she going to not get booed off that big stage at the convention? And it turns out she didn't even make it to the big stage. She got booed off of a breakfast gathering of the Florida delegation, and she got fired before the big stage, before the convention started. But an hour after she got fired, the Clinton campaign put out a message that she was now an honorary co-chair of the Clinton campaign. Wow. Um, do you blame WikiLeaks? This is the $6 million question. Do you blame WikiLeaks for Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016? Is it their fault? Not, not one bit. Not one bit. And uh, I have another story that sort of ties Debbie in here. Uh, the weekend before the November election between Clinton and Trump, Wasserman Schultz, I think it was a Friday evening, was on HBO's um, uh, Vice. Vice? Vice. 
Yes. Right? And it was one of those softball interviews. And she was being asked, you know, the Sanders people are blaming you. And, you know, what's your response? And she, like, uh, you know, hammed it up and, and said, you know, she, it was completely undeserved and she had done nothing wrong. And you know something? She was poking her finger in the eye of Sanders supporters in that interview. And I thought, of all the time to do that, why would you do it the weekend before the election? You do it because you've got supreme overconfidence and hubris that you're going to win this election. Why else would you pick a fight with the Sanders folks days before election day? And I think that was the entire Clinton playbook. Hillary Clinton never went to Michigan or Wisconsin. She hung Wait out. Wait a second. Canada. You mean that it wasn't Julian Assange that gave uh, <laughs> Hillary Clinton a map of the U.S. that excluded Michigan and Wisconsin? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's Julian's fault that she never made it to Michigan and Wisconsin. You know, it's, it's terrible, all of the excuses they've made after that election to blame everybody. Uh, but themselves. They never looked themselves in the mirror. The Democratic Party never had an autopsy of what went wrong. Uh, you know, th they had to have their Mueller investigation, $30 million, 40 FBI agents. Don't remind me. Yeah. Okay. And then I got, I got wrapped into that too. Then it was Ukraine bait, you know, and it's anything but considering what the establishment itself might have done wrong. And I think they've set themselves up for defeat for 2020. You really do. Yeah, I do. I do. I think that... Uh, Can Biden even Biden, make it the Biden, finish line? With Biden, this charismatic candidate, <laughs> Joe Biden, is not the, uh, you know, the knight on the white horse. I think it'll be a bit of a miracle if uh, Biden makes it um, past the conventions and, and is really the candidate on the ticket in November. I think they're trying to force feed us Andrew Cuomo, but I know so much about Andrew Cuomo. I just did an interview uh, with uh, Anya Parampil uh, of uh, Gray Zone News, because I've known Andrew for 20 years. And I can tell you, he is a Joe Biden neoliberal. Uh, he's a, a reactionary. Uh, he is not a progressive. At well, 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 he is riding the wave right now yeah. of, of as if he did some kind of miracle in New York State, we have 300,000 people that are infected. We got like 20,000 people dead. And he's taken all the credit because he's given us the daily de death count. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's, he's always been well-funded by Wall Street. I remember that he was propping up this contingent of Democrats in the state Senate, I think, that were really Republicans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, it, was, it was called the... Uh, the, the uh, IDC, Independent Democratic uh, uh, Committee, uh, which were three Democrats that were all like reactionary whites that right. broke away and, and, and they like uh, caucused with the Republicans. And the and whole they never the did whole anything progressive. Exactly. That way he wouldn't be in this position where he either has to sign very progressive legislation and gets painted as a left-wing Democrat or he vetoes it and aggravates progressives right that uh i have known the guy very very well uh since he parachuted into a movement that i was um very much involved in and that was the movement to repeal the rockefeller drug laws his mm -hmm. career was dead in uh, 2002 after he was in, he was embarrassed by uh being thrown out of the uh, primary against uh, carl mccall 
And his career was dead, and he parachuted into the very popular uh, Rockefeller drug law reform movement. And uh, once he became governor, he totally threw us aside and did nothing to try to change the conditions of the prisons, of the drug laws, not even marijuana. We don't have legalized marijuana in the Empire State. Right. What do you say about that? Right. And uh, what about his uh, public I integrity, his corruption commission? Yeah, I know all about that. Listen, half the people that he hung out with over the last 10 years are in jail or were indicted. His best friend, Joe Prococo, is in Otisville Prison. I know that guy very well. Uh, there's the uh, Buffalo Billion uh, scandal that he's involved in. Uh, but he's been using these, um, these daily, I call them daily uh, wakes or shivers, uh, to uh, kind of like uh, exploit the vacuum uh, that, that exists right now with Joe Biden kind of, you know, he, he, he really is an if, if he's going to continue. And yeah. so, you know, Andrew Cuomo is the guy waiting to be uh, the, the- He very well might be. I've heard, I've heard some other names uh, that would be even more shocking than Andrew Cuomo. Tell uh, me who could be more shocking. I've heard Hillary Clinton, uh, Michelle Obama, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, I guess Warren would be the least shocking since she already ran. Um, but, you know, Randy, before, you know, we run out of time, I do want to uh, uh, steer the discussion to one point. All right, uh, let's do that because we are running out of time. Um, so, a major point. Um, well, it is a major point. The United States is the only major democracy in the world or country that calls itself a democracy that still uses electronic voting machines. And the electronic voting machine has been banned all over the world for the simple reason that these electronic voting machines are inherently vulnerable to outside hacking and insider manipulation of the software. When Great Britain votes, there's no electronic voting machines. It's paper ballots that are counted by hand in public on election night at the local precinct level. And there's so much less opportunity to steal elections. That but you mean, wait a second. The, the, when you see these MPs yeah. all stand up on a stage, those are all by paper ballots? Yes, yes, absolutely. Australia, uh, South Korea just threw out, after 18 years of electronic voting machines, the citizens had a petition drive, 200,000 signatures. They threw out the electronic voting machines. Germany, France, the Netherlands, Sweden. I'm telling you, these electronic voting machines are a fraud. They're a sham. You know, there's an annual hackers conference in Las Vegas. It's called the DEF CON conference. And two or three years ago, an 11-year-old boy hacked into Florida's um, election system in 15 minutes. The next year, uh, the election experts assembled 100 electronic voting machines that are used throughout the country. Every single machine got hacked into at the DEF CON conference. These machines are a joke. If I ask you, who are the big companies that run these machines? Most Americans wouldn't know the names of these companies. Dominion elect, uh, Election System, Heart InterCivic, uh, ESNS, Election System and Software. ESNS is the dominant one. And the electronic voting machines in my district and all over Florida, we have paper ballots, but they're not counted by hand.
they're scanned through an electronic voting machine, an ESNS machine, that has wireless cellular modems on them. It's a joke. They can be hacked in. They, they, they can be manipulated before they actually count your vote. And there's no, uh, the software, good luck in, in reviewing the software, it's considered proprietary. You may not inspect the software. It's the private trade secrets of ESNS. Who owns ESNS? It ends up, it's owned by a private equity firm, the McCarthy Group, located in Omaha, Nebraska. This is who we've trusted our elections to. You know, it always gets me. Bernie Sanders talks about Medicare for all. This is a multi-trillion dollar healthcare industry, and he wants to wipe out private health insurers. Multi-trillion dollars. But he's not willing to look at, not multi-trillion, but just a, a billion dollar industry that we privatize. It's called our election system. It's called how we count the votes. We've privatized it to mainly three shadowy companies that we know nothing about. It's a great opportunity to have a casino. They might as well have a, a black market on elections. Well, you know, I got to tell you something. It's right here. It, 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 uh, at Twitter, it's Tim underscore uh, Canova. Uh, and right there, it, it describes you and it says, America needs hand-counted paper ballots now. So you're very passionate uh, about this. We do not have a democracy without it. Well, is that your phone? Are you, I mean, you're getting a phone call at the beach? I'm, I'm sorry about that. It's okay. I hope it's a, a tequila sunrise that you're getting. <laughs> All right. But, but, you know, you're very passionate about this. And, you know, you're Don Quixote. I mean, I mean look, I, I totally uh, support what you're doing. Uh, and you're so knowledgeable. Uh, and and I, really, I really commend you for continually. Well, uh, fighting against these major odds and these major I, evil foes. I appreciate that, Randy. Uh, you know, it's not just me fighting it. There are a lot of people who are waking up to these electronic voting machines. You know, I'll tell you, I learned about this through a lot of the folks, the election integrity experts who crunched the data on these elections and not just my election. In 2000... It's okay. You can, listen, we are having a free-form conversation, so you can actually pick that up and tell the person you're talking about Julian Assange, Randy Credico, and Assange County Under Freedom. It's okay. I've done it before. There so, are no rules here. This is not 60 minutes. Well, before, before I, I, I forget, who is that calling? That's ESNS. I think they're concerned about this conversation. I think they are, too. And that, you know what? This is going to be a great bit when this thing is online tomorrow, right? <laughs> Well, tomorrow, uh, Thursday, that being Thursday, today being Wednesday, as you know. All, uh, those, all those millions of people who contributed money to Bernie Sanders. In 2016, Sanders beat um, Hillary Clinton in the exit polls in a dozen states that Hillary won. How did Hillary win at the polls and somehow Sanders beats her in the exit polls by significant amounts in the exit polls? New York City, where you're in New York, correct? Yes, I, I voted for for Sanders in Brooklyn. You remember what happened in 2016? Yeah, 100,000 were totally scrubbed. Exactly, electronically, electronically scrubbed from the voting rolls. And the same thing happened in 2020, when you think about it. Joe Biden was behind going into Super Tuesday in so many states. And in some of those states, he was in third or fourth place. 
And then he had the most miraculous resurrection. He wins uh, 10 out of 14 Super Tuesday states, but loses the exit polls. So again, is it the electronic voting machines? How can you have, I call this faith-based voting. You've got to trust these shadowy companies that they're going to count your votes properly. Well, so I guess you just continue. Not, you're not being deterred. You just keep moving forward and trying, trying to right this obvious wrong in our well, isn't that isn't that what we're all doing? You yeah. know, there's an, obvious, voting, there's an obvious wrong with Julian Assange being uh, in, in a maximum security prison. And, and you haven't given up on him. Millions of people haven't given up on him. And it might seem Don Quixote-ish to keep at it, but what choice do you have? It's I've an got to. How important, it, by the way, yes. How, there are a lot of political prisoners, not only in the US, but around the world. But there's something about the, uh, the political prisoner, Julian Assange. And somebody said, well, yes, there are political prisoners out there and we should be supporting, and we do. But the thing with Assange, since he's a journalist, this is like a step towards, a giant step towards fascism. Do you agree with that analysis? A hundred percent. You know, when you listen to what Julian used to talk about, this idea of radical transparency and using the World Wide Web to make governments accountable to the people. I mean, what we're really talking about here is the idea of democracy and representative government. You know, not direct democracy, but representative democracy. And you don't have it when they rig elections, and you don't have it when you've got a media system that's owned by six conglomerates that don't want to hold politicians accountable in any way. So Assange and WikiLeaks represents a different path, a way to, a way to empower citizens to keep government transparent and accountable to us, to the people. And by locking him up, it is having a chilling effect. So he is the most important political prisoner on the planet at this point. Well, you know, I really can't follow that. Uh, I was going to ask you another question, but you, you landed on that one. And, and I totally agree. And, and I, I appreciate all of the work that you have done. I know it's difficult. Thanks, I know right. it's a tough road to hoe, uh, but you're not deterred. Look, Bill Kunstler was like my godfather, and he took on all sorts of losing causes. It's like Jimmy Stewart in... Um, in uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. The only causes that are worth fighting for are lost causes. That's what he said. That's beautiful. It's wonderful. Now, look I mean, at that, that speech at, at the end of, uh, not at the end, but somewhere in the middle, he says that uh, the most important causes are lost causes. That's what he says to well, Reigns, the corrupt senator that was trying to take him down. Uh, and you've been doing that? And, uh, you know, I'm, we are going to continue this fight for Julian Assange. Uh, it, it's not like I'm a, an Assange fanatic, but I am a First Amendment and free speech fanatic. And he represents, if he goes down, we're in a lot of trouble. Well, th that's the same with me. I've never met Julian Assange, uh, but it is what he represents. And the First Amendment is hanging by a thread right now. I mentioned six media conglomerates, 90% of the broadcast, television, radio, and print media is controlled by six conglomerates now. And then you've got social media, which was supposed to be the alternative to that. It's a democracy, right? That's the democratic media. Social media. Right, right. Social media. And you now see 
Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, all shadow banning and censoring and employing thousands of people to decide what to censor and what not to censor. So there's not much left of the First Amendment suddenly. And I've been shadow banned on Twitter. Uh, I've had uh, two uh, anonymous groups that have examined and I've been shadow banned. That's kind of a scary prospect. Well, and, and you don't even realize it's happening until well after it starts happening. And I, I've also been shadow banned and am being shadow banned uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, my posts are hardly ever seen by people who used to see them all the time. So I used to see your stuff all the time. I have to go to your Twitter account to see your stuff. Did exactly. you know that? Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I hear all. The I got it right here. All right. Look, yeah. I had to go to your account to yeah. get this and get this. I actually had to go and I, I printed these. Uh, I had to go to your account because I, you know, I used to see everything, but I don't anymore. It yeah. doesn't flow down. Yeah, I know. Uh, I hear it all the time, my friend. All That's the time. a compliment, though. It, I know it's not a compliment that you prefer it not to be that way, but it is a compliment because you're making a difference. I think that is the way to look at it. You're right. Um, these are powerful forces that we're fighting and they're corrupt, they're corrupt forces. They don't have the interest of the people at heart. They're really there for corporate profits and nothing else. And we're doing something right if we're on their shit list. Uh, yes, you can say shit list right here. I don't give a fuck, all right? <laughs> uh, so uh, Tim Canova, uh, where can people uh, find you? I know it's Tim underscore uh, Canova at Twitter, but uh, people want to reach you, uh, read your uh, articles and folks can, you're doing. Folks, folks can email me direct, directly at tim at timcanova.com. Um, we've got two websites. One is the old campaign website at, at uh, Tim Canova for Congress, but uh, the, and it's still pretty up to date on the issues. And the other is progressforall.org. Uh, you know, I'm a law professor and I've been publishing for 20 years. It's a whole nother conversation, actually more than 20 years. Uh, way back in 2011, I was part of the Occupy Wall Street movement in L.A. And Senator Bernie Sanders put me on a special advisory committee on reforming the Federal Reserve, because that's mostly what I had been writing about for many years, about how unaccountable the Federal Reserve was and how we needed to reform its governance structure and its priorities. So for my scholarly articles and book chapters, people could go to the Social Science Research Network, SSRN. They can find the stuff that I've been publishing for a long time. All right, that's great. We don't have to go to Jekyll Island to do that, right? No, the, the, the conspiracy of Jekyll Island. Yeah, that's a classic. I, it's, my, it's my favorite. All right. Well, you sound a little bit like Ron Paul when you talk like that. You know something? Bobby Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy Sr. used to quote Pascal, and he said, greatness isn't touching one extreme. Greatness is touching both extremes at the same time. You know, I, I'm glad that you can't pigeonhole me as some kind of a, you know, progressive leftist and that's it. You know, I, I believe in freedom. I believe in the rule of law and accountability of the government. And if that brings me into common cause with Ron Paul or with Gary Johnson, so be it. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm, I left that Democratic Party because it is a corrupt party. I am very proud to be an independent. Well, I, I got to tell you something. Uh, I, I wish you were in Congress, and I hope people are inspired by the work that you've done in the past, some of these uh, difficult challenges that you've run up against. Uh, you know, you're a gutsy guy, 
and, uh, and at least people will be inspired by listening to what you've gone through and what you continue to do. And uh, thank you very much for all that you've done and all that you do and all that you will continue to do. Thank you, Randy. I appreciate it. I look forward to next time and keep fighting, my friend. That was, listen, that was a quick conversation. We didn't even get started, all right? We'll be back with you. All right, that's Tim Canova. Uh, we're gonna play um, a little bit of music. This is a uh, movie night. This music is from my favorite Marx Brother film, Horse Feathers. We'll be right back with some closing thoughts. <laughs> Okay, you got to see Horse Feathers, man, to hear Chico Marx play that theme tune. There's like four different versions throughout uh, Horse Feathers, one by Groucho, one by Zeppo, and uh, one by Harpo. Um, anyway, I'm Randy Credico. This is uh, Randy Credico Live on the Fly, Assange Countdown to Freedom, episode 17 with my dear friend uh, William Benny and my new friend Tim uh, Canova. Um, and uh, they were spectacular tonight. It was a long show, but it was a good show, and uh, I, I hope you were informed and entertained at the same time. Um, I want to thank, before I forget, uh, the engineer who has to put all of this together, and that is Kelly Lane out of North Carolina, and uh, the person she works with to edit this out of Lake Arrowhead, California, where I grew up, uh, like within 30 miles in Pomona, California, and that's Jimmy Sunderland. And uh, the overall three-year contribution by Anonymous Scandinavia, who I have not heard from in the last uh, two weeks, and I'm getting a little nervous. So if you're out there, Anonymous Scandinavia, please reach us. Uh, if you want to support the show, and we do need your, your support, uh, go to SansCountdownToFreedom.com and uh, throw in a few dollars. We've been doing this. This is our fourth year. We will continue to do it. And I ask for just modest uh, support at our website, AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com. The trial uh, will not resume for six months, and we need to uh, get some support out there. If you like this show, if you want us to continue, and we've got like five or six people uh, working on this. Uh, we got a, a webmaster, we got a new website. And the, yeah, it's, it's not a lot of money, just looking to pay the bills. So AssangeCountdownToFreedom.com uh, if you'd like to support us. And um, I, I guess that's basically it. Uh, Tim Canova, who ran for office, I've run for office too. And we're going to close here. I ran for office in 2010 against Schumer, uh, 2014 uh, against uh, Andrew Cuomo. And in 2013, I ran against 
a field of uh, Democratic uh, opponents, including Bill de Blasio. And, uh, and when the Democratic primary was over, I ran uh, what was called the Tax Wall Street Party uh, that was invented that year. And I, I put out an ad, and uh, it, it shows my support of the Sandinista government back in the uh, 1980s. I'm a proud supporter of the revolution in Nicaragua. And uh, so we're going to play the ad from 2013. This way we don't have to pay residuals uh, for the music, all right? Because the music is from Nicaragua and they gave it to me and, and um, I don't want the YouTube uh, you know, thought police to close us down looking for loopholes. That's why we had uh, original music um, renditions by Raphael de Lugoff today. So this is it. This is from 2013. This is the this is the end of the show. Assange countdown to freedom. My ad from 2013 against Bill De Blasio in the general election. And we'll see you very soon with Ralph Nader. He's next. My fellow Americans, as I often warned back in the 80s, the Sandinistas would one day try to spread their revolution to America. And 20 years later, it seems that I was right, as one of their biggest supporters is running for mayor of New York City. That candidate, a Democrat, naturally, is Randy Credico, now running as an independent. Credico spent a lot of time down in Nicaragua often making fun of me and my policies at protests in front of the U.S. Embassy in Managua. In fact, he organized a group called Humorist Against War and traveled around Nicaragua with Jane Fonda's kid Vanessa and Sandinista officials. He did fundraisers with Ambassador Nora Astorga, the hardcore revolutionary, and he mimicked me in private functions for his socialist buddy, Daniel Ortega. Credico, an Occupy vet, wants to tax Wall Street and give it to the poor. I'm telling you, he's well armed with lots of dangerous ideas. So, if you see him floating around your neighborhood, please notify your local authorities. May God bless.